It's not fun. It's not a game. They want your data. friends and enemies. It's episode 243 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, flying solo for this episode. Jeremy and Ed can't join me, um, in large part, well, primarily uh, because of the time difference uh, with our guest, um, who we're, we, it's sometimes the, the tricontinental records are just a bit too much. But um, I'm very excited to be joined by Abeba Berhane, uh, who is a senior fellow in Trustworthy AI at the Mozilla Foundation, as well as an adjunct assistant professor in the School of Computer Science at Trinity College in Dublin. Uh, Abeba, thank you so much for joining us, joining me. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. I am excited too because I am a, a big fan of your work um, and also a, a big fan of your tweets as well, um, which is one of the first places I came across your work before um, reading your your academic papers. And um, I, I think you know for the for our topics, right? This is it's very serendipitous that we. Uh, scheduled this interview before the release of GPT-4, and now we're mm-hmm. holding it um, <laughs> when GPT-4 was just released earlier this month. So, you you are one of the people I go to. One of the one of the the the, the timelines, the feeds I go to um, <laughs> when I really want to try to make sense of the kind of these large computational models, these large-scale data sets, and really place them in that uh, social, political, economic context. Um, So uh, we've got a lot to dig (laughs) into, um, but I can imagine... The trying to stay on top of what's happening with the release of GPT-4 has been keeping you really busy. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for uh, for all the kind words. Uh, and right back at you, I also really dig your tweets. They are sensible and to the point. So yeah, uh, yeah, it's just been crazy since the release of GPT four. Uh, everywhere, my my tweet, my timeline has completely been overtaken by tweets of GPT four. Mostly and unfortunately, uh, people being extremely impressed, people exaggerating, people overhyping, people even actively misleading. Uh, you have, you know, very senior professors tweeting uh, things like, you know, uh, this AGI is amazing without even any any questions and equating GPT four to AGI. So. Yeah, absolutely ridiculous amount of uh, noise, I should say. Um, and everybody has just lost their, well, most people have their have lost their, you know, critical faculty to stop and think. And everybody's just tweeting the, you know, um, snapshots of outputs from the model. Um, 
it's it's it, it, in a sense it's also difficult to really keep track of what people are saying there is so much misinformation some people are talking about equate some people are equating gpt4 to agi some are campaigning for rights for for the <laughs> for the la, la, for the language model um some are saying uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, the same as the invention of fire or even a much more advanced time than the invention of fire. Everything's going to radically change. Life as we know it is gone. It's, it's exhausting. <laughs> it's exhausting. It is, it is, it is really wild. Like, I, I think you're very kind when you say people have lost their critical faculties because I, I would say people have just lost their absolute minds. Like, there, the, there's a level of hysteria, um, around this technology, like, uh, that, that's really just, kind of shocking in a lot of ways. And, and the equation, the, the equivocation with generative AI and AGI or artificial general intelligence, two starkly different things, even though their acronyms sound very similar mm. to each other, uh, mm. is, is really pernicious. And it's by a lot of people who should know better because you're right. It's like, it's mm. not just, um, you know, kind of, the, the lay public, right? The non-expert kind of consumers and things like that. It is uh, senior scientists and engineers and yeah. large uh, universities, major universities, major mm. companies. You know, TMK, mm. well, you know, uh, not that long ago, we did a, a whole episode talking about the, the really long essay in the Wall Street Journal that Henry Kissinger, Eric Schmidt, and Daniel Huttenwalker mm. um, put out about exactly this, how ChatGPT is a intellectual revolution on par with, the, you know, a new enlightenment and, and all of that. But I, I think you really hit on something here, though, is that there is a just an avalanche of stuff being said and tweeted and written mm. and published uh, about all of this, you know, with the release of uh, GPT-4, OpenAI, you know, released a 99-page a technical report. Mm. Uh, you know, Sam Altman did an exclusive 20-minute interview with ABC. Uh, you know, all yeah. of this other stuff. We'll all, we can also get to the paper on archive by micro, the Microsoft Research yeah. uh, you know, a scientist to, you know, sparks of artificial general intelligence, early ex experiments with GPT-4, which I've seen people like Emily Bender uh, talk about as a 150-page piece of speculative fiction um, dressed yes. up as a scientific <laughs> article. Um, and I think the most remarkable thing about the amount of stuff that has actually been said is, or has actually been written and published uh, is how little is actually said um, yeah, about this, exactly. how, how little detail um, and substance there is. I want to throw it over to you, but I first want to really quickly quote from the GPT-4 technical report OpenAI put out, again, a 99-page report that mm. says almost nothing, right? It's mm. ostensibly based on six months of intensive red expert red teaming, quote-unquote, mm. and everything in that report you and I could have written without ever yes. actually touching the model. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. 
yeah, exactly. There is so much speculation, so much noise, and it, it's really difficult to actually assess. It's actually it's difficult to get some grasp of the reality. What is what is like what is sensible information that's been written that's been put out there, and and how much of it is actually just you know dust or noise, uh, whatever, and. It's actually uh, now everybody's going crazy, as you, or as you said, losing their minds over uh, GPT-4. But it's GPT-4 is just one of the large language models that's being released. And as you are aware, you know Microsoft, Google, DeepMind, Facebook—they are all in in, in rat racing, neck and neck competition. They all have released large language models, and for some reason, it's GPT-4 that we continually talk about. Um, and going back to the, this paper um, that you mentioned, yes, I absolutely agree. It's there is nothing scientific about it. Uh, there, they, there is no information that they have given us that will help us assess the, the accuracy, the performance, the validity of the model. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, uh, despite its name, OpenAI hasn't opened anything. Uh, in fact, uh, they are walking back to the various uh, open APIs they they had actually opened up previously. Um, so, in a sense, uh, it's it's the, the opposite of science because uh, in order for something to be science, every, you have to be able to, everything has to be transparent. You have to be able to see, you have to be able to observe, you have to be able to assess, evaluate, and test it. But when OpenAI has been actively secretive about, you know, the data, the model, everything in between, uh, you really, you really can't uh, can't say anything for sure about it. And unfortunately, on the one hand, they want to treat the model as a global good. Uh, I was in a closed meeting with Sam Altman and a few other people uh, last week, where the idea is to uh, if if we can uh, if we can make. Uh, GPT-4 or the GPT family as a global good, where in the in the meeting you had various inter international bodies such as the UN present, and the idea is to think about deploying this system in, you know, in education, uh, in um, kind of organizing um, migration, uh, that kind of stuff. So. It's really, the irony is extremely deep because on the one hand, they want to treat it as a global good. But on the other hand, there is no global participation. There is no global inclusion. I was, uh, I, I play with the model, you know, constantly. Of course, I can't help it. And I'm originally from Ethiopia. So I, uh, in order to present at that meeting, I was giving it prompt from my own language, from Amharic. And uh, that model is not even close to being a global good because uh, I started with complex prompts and it had no idea. And then I, I was starting to give up and I, in the end I was giving it very simple factual prompts, things like, you know, which continent is the country Ethiopia found? And it couldn't even answer that properly when, I, when, I, when the input prompt is in Amharic. 
So, and I know other people have, uh, other scholars from across the African continent, uh, those that have access. The other thing is also not everybody has access because I know my colleagues in Ethiopia have been trying to get access and it just says GPT-3 or the GPT family is not available in Ethiopia. And Ethiopia is not the only country that the, the model is not available. So <laughs> you don't have, the global community doesn't have access. Even for those of us who have access, it doesn't recognize our language. Even if it does, I don't want it to. I, I, I would rather, you know, my community build its own language model rather than, you know, OpenAI building it and selling it back to my community. So there are so many problems. There are so many layers to the problem. Yet uh, they, they want to sell it as a global good. Um, so this is, um, for, for the lack of a better word, this is absurd. Um, and I guess the, the first thing as, as an auditor I would ask for is for the data set and for the model to be opened so we can have access, so we can evaluate it. Uh, and if it has to be a global good, it also has to be owned by, you know, the global community as other global goods not uh, not something held by uh, you know a corporation with um a few handful powerful people. Yeah, I mean, I think the the irony here is that a company named OpenAI has released a supremely closed AI model, and you know, you're you're a a, a senior fellow in trustworthy AI, but what they've released is trust us AI, right? <laughs> like it really is yeah. just uh, hey, just trust us, because right in the front of their technical report in the scopes and limitations section, which is only uh, two very short short paragraphs, even though those two short paragraphs contain a lot of uh, limitations, um, they yeah. say, you know, I'll, I'll quote from them. They say, quote, given both the competitive landscape and the safety implications of large-scale models like GPT-4, this repo report contains no further details about the architecture, including model size, hardware, training, compute, data set construction, training method, or similar. And then in the mm -hmm. very next sentence, they say, we are committed to independent auditing of our technology. <laughs> I see a yes. contradiction yeah. here, right? <laughs> what, yes, what they... absolutely, absolutely. I mean, if you want independent auditors to have to 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 go and audit, you know, the model or the data set, there is no way but to give access to 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 the data set into the model, and they are not doing that. They are doing the opposite, and. I know open sourcing and open access is not the you know the the the, the golden solution for everything uh, because you have you know large scale data sets such as you know Lion and the Lion family Lion four hundred million Lion five billion and uh, we can get in, we can get into the detail of that uh, later maybe because we are also auditing that data set at the moment um, so uh, yes. Open sourcing is problematic because what we find when we look, when, what we have found when we looked at those large-scale data sets is uh, really horrific content, uh, content that shouldn't be there, you know, pornography, child rape, images of genocide and so on, and things I can't say on the podcast. Uh, but the thing is, because it's open access, because we can expose it, people are compelled to do something about it. So the, the point I want to make is, uh, so we, 
I've been dying to, you know, to compare how OpenAI models fare. And uh, again, this is an upcoming paper with um, preliminary findings, w- w- uh, not very, very firm findings. Uh, we What we did was compare... Um, how models perform open open uh, open sourced models versus OpenAI models perform, uh, and without getting into too much detail, uh, as bad as open sourced models and datasets are, uh, when um, maybe I'll have to get into the experiment a little bit to make sense of it. So we used this uh, Chicago Fish dataset. It's uh, the dataset pro- itself is problematic. I don't know if you are aware of it. It has uh, uh, very uh, tightly controlled images of people in a white background uh, uh, with um, two genders and four skin types. Uh, this data is as, data set is as simple for research purposes. So, um, so it's a very limited data. Very set. limited. Yeah. No, it's not natural. It's everybody's. Uh, showing similar face expression and you have two genders and uh, four different uh, skin types uh, again this is not this is not how races and genders present in in nature of course uh, but just for the purpose of the scientific studies uh, we can we can put the question about the, the you know questions on the the, the ethics or the the uh, the realisticness of the data set aside for now but what we did was that pass uh, hundreds of uh, images of people from from the Chicago data face data face uh, from the Chicago face data set through these models, OpenAI's closed models and other open sourced models, and we know that OpenAI itself has been struggling with. Uh, uh, you know, misidentifying black faces. This is something actually we don't talk about. A while back, I think five, six years ago, Google had, uh, uh, there was a huge scandal where um, Google's face recognition was tagging people, black people as gorillas. And that yeah. when that scandal broke, it was outrageous and people were disgusted. And eventually that died out and we were under the impression that that problem is that problem is solved but in fact it hasn't a lot of vision models still classify black people as you know gorilla orangutan ape and so on if if i rem- if i remember right the way google saw, quote unquote solved that problem was they just eliminated the gorilla tag so they <laughs> yes, didn't make yes. it better they just said <laughs> okay just stop recognizing and tagging gorilla yes. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and OpenAI did their own audit with a quotation mark um, in 2021, so two years ago, a year and a half ago, for on a data set called the Fairface data set. And uh, again, they found that uh, black people were uh, classified or labeled as gorilla, orangutan, ape, and so on at a much higher rate compared to white skins. So this is recent and this is still happening. So going back to our own experiment, what we did was pass these images through these models and the open source models uh, still tagged black people as orangutan, ape, gorilla, and so on. But when uh, for the for the OpenAI models, 
there were many more images. Again, I can't give you the exact number because this is a preliminary uh, result. Uh, open, so OpenAI models did much worse. They tagged, they classified black people as, as thief, suspicious, suspicious person, gorilla, uh, and all other kind of uh, ape family animals at a much higher rate. So again, we can't really assess OpenAI's models because we don't have access, but we can directly test them and infer that their data sets are much worse than, than the open source models that we have access to that we can audit. And I have a suspicion this is why this is why they keep covering up. It's much easier to, you know, uh, to close everything and just say, take our words, everything is fine. Uh, rather than opening it up and putting, putting, you know, you just have to, these, these things are something that can be improved that we can work on, but they just need a lot of resources and they need a lot of funding. Uh, and they would rather put the funding on, you know, overhyped things rather than uh, this really critical work, this really essential work. Uh, that is important to improving models, to making sure that these models function and perform and do well for people that don't fit, you know, certain categories, certain classifications. So these are people usually at the margins of so at the margins of society that end up being misclassified, that end up being excluded or discriminated against through the downstream impacts of these models. I, everything you just laid out there as well, you know, it really shows how difficult it is to audit these technologies when the um, owners uh, of the technology are really, um, you know, vehemently against people auditing it, right? And really mm -hmm. want to prevent people from getting that access. Instead, you have to go through and do like these really complex uh, kind of, you know, figure out these complex methods to do auditing, um, which are then, then you have to ba base your conclusions on uh, a lot of inference and speculation mm. yourself. Um, mm. And that's part of the point there too, right? Because then it, mm. it insulates, as you're saying, it insulates open AI mm. Um, mm. from saying, well, that's not right. Your conclusions are wrong. You know, uh, your, your, your study was incomplete or incorrect in various ways. And, and open AI is a, a really big example of this right now. Mm. They're certainly not the only ones. I, I won't get into it in this episode mm. in our discussion, but in my, in my, uh, uh, my big research project or one of my big research projects focuses on the uh, insure tech industry, on the insurance technology. Um, and similarly, they have a lot of black boxed um, automated systems that they use for underwriting and pricing policies for handling claims and, and all of that. And, and these things are not open to independent audits whatsoever. Even regulators don't get their hands on, on these, uh, um, systems at the insurance companies. And so instead, people like me who want to do auditing of the algorithm to see, like, is there, racial or ethnic bias is there gender bias is there geographical bias mm. um mm. we have to really jump through a lot of hoops to do that yeah and then still the day the conclusions we reach are 
partly based on inference and and incomplete uh you know incomplete conclusions and and the the insurance companies the technology companies they always use this as an as a shield to say mm-hmm. well you don't understand the technology you're not you know your your conclusions are yeah. speculation um, and, yeah. it, and it's because they give us no other option exactly and what's really frustrating is on the one hand they say something but they go off and do the opposite so as you said for example OpenAI keeps saying that they want to be audited by independent auditors but in practice they 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 do not they do not invite in they do not you know they do not open up access to third-party independent auditors. So it's a bit of a contradiction. What they say and what they do doesn't match up. And it makes you... So when we are constantly kind of pointing this out, we come across as the ones that are negative, the ones that are, you know, buzzkill, the ones that are problematic. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's really frustrating. And, of course... All data sets that come that that are sourced from the internet uh, will always have problematic. There will always be, you know, racial slurs. <clears throat> there will always be racist, misogynist uh, labeling and representations of minoritized communities. Uh, this is the nature of the, the the internet itself. So when uh, the whole the whole you know deep learning revolution. Uh, it didn't come because we had new methods or we had new techniques. The techniques have been there since the 60s, the 70s. What made the deep learning revolution, what made AI a boom over the last 15, 20 years is the internet, which means the accessibility or the availability. Again, I say with a quotation mark availability because it's really not available. It's almost data theft. It's the, again, with a quotation mark, the availability of large scale data sets and the people are able to assemble large scale data sets uh, due to the internet, because we put up our selfies, our various images on the internet, all our uh, you know text exchanges or various communications in various forums are kind of uh, sourced as text data set. Um, the video we upload becomes data set for again training, uh, training and validating machine learning models. So it's it's people, it's our data set that made the deep the deep learning revolution, uh, and so. Take imagine it for example when it came about 14, 15 years ago. Uh, it, it 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 took a lot of it assembled a lot of uh, openly available uh, images from from the internet uh, and dataset curation back then used to be much more much more careful. Uh, it was much more cautious. There was a lot of human involvement. Uh, Imagine it, for example, had a series of competitions for many years where people were constantly auditing and improving the data set. So we have like, uh, uh, you know, good gold standard data sets such as ImageNet. Again, with some caveat, it's really still problematic, but it's the best we have. But now you have all that human involvement is gone. Over the last two years, what people do is not really carefully curate data sets like, like you know, uh, initiatives like ImageNet did, but just write a script to crawl the web and just assemble it with no human oversight. Nobody knows what's inside the data set. Nobody knows 
where the data sets is sourced from and then you just like leave it there as a source as 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 uh, as uh, as a data set for training and validating machine learning models so what you end up with a huge pile of toxic from the internet because the internet is a toxic place and then without so much question it's sometimes i i stop and think about how little attention there is on data sets and i go am i going crazy or is this just you know is this <laughs> so you look at any internet source data set and again as i said the internet is the only place where you can gather huge billions and millions of images or text or image text pairs or or uh, video or audio data you will always have problematic content in the data set and we know that openai partly is trained on internet sourced data set and there is no way that data set doesn't contain problematic content there is no way that data set doesn't have racist and sexist and otherwise problematic labels on you know various concepts cultures and identities but we just don't have access it's just not open so we can't audit it and we can without auditing you can't improve it you can't know what's inside it um so I'm sorry I I went on on tangent. No, uh, you're you're yeah. right. And then, <laughs> I mean even if we had access to the data set, it's so large. Like if it is the entire internet, which there's good reason to believe that's essentially what the data set is is the entire internet um for the most part at least, you know. Uh even if we had access to it, how would you even go about auditing um a data set that large, right? Uh, yeah. uh you, you would be trying to audit at the entire internet it may it's it's a yes. it's a it's a, a task yeah. that makes no sense <laughs> yes i agree i agree if we want some careful uh you know uh human uh with so much human involvement with little automated <laughs> auditing process it will probably take years however i my thinking is that it it's not a it's not whether it's clean audited data set or you know toxic data set there is it's not either or there has to be there always is somewhere in between yeah so we can always do better there are various tricks again not not uh, you know not the full answer not the uh, yeah not the you know the golden solution but you can do various things you can filter out you know certain things based on keywords uh you can uh check for various uh toxicity uh you can check for various stereotypes stereotypes are uh you know one of the biggest issues uh you look at you know for example with lion uh, 400 million the data set we audited we checked for stereotypes you 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 query the data set with like africa and you get you know uh, african very cliched tired stereotypical african people uh, almost naked with you know face paints in their hearts whereas you you pro- you put in europe uh, it gives you like very neutral uh, content like maps and uh, flags as if europe doesn't have you know as if europeans don't have uh, tribes and uh, you know uh, you, you type you know terrorist you don't it doesn't give you like the the right far 
the far right school shooter, it gives you Middle Eastern men with, you know, uh, head coverings. Uh, so the data set really like has very malignant stereotypes. So these are things you can check for and you can not completely remove, but you can do various things to mitigate it, to, to lessen, uh, to, to minimize, to, to minimize, for example, these stereotypical representations or to remove. So content, for example, you know, images of war, genocide, images of rape in children, images of pornography. These are things that shouldn't be in data sets. So these are things you can do to, to, to improve these things, not to, to make them perfect, not to make them like clean, but to improve them. But still, OpenAI is not doing this, or we have no evidence that they are doing this. Right, or or um, from like, or we, we we know if to what extent they are doing it in order to like power. So, for example, the technical report talks a lot about improvements in their safeguards, right? Like mm. now, if you give prompts asking for uh, you know racist or sexist or homophobic or other kinds of biased or discriminatory, you know, write me a you know a poem about why the white people are the superior race. This is like an example of a prompt. <laughs> Given the report, and you know, Chat G the Chat GPT based on the three point five model would have said, "Well, I don't agree with that, but here's a poem, right?" Uh, and <laughs> Chat GPT four, the latest model, has instead a kind of uh, a boilerplate, like you know, racism is bad, and you know, I'm 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 sorry, I'm unable to answer this prompt. So they they've kind of one of the big things they do is they they tout how much better their safeguards are at. Uh, mm. um, catching these kinds of, you know, they won't tell you how to build a bomb. It won't tell you how to do illegal or dangerous things or how, or it won't give you bias, discriminatory, won't say slurs or anything like that. Mm -hmm. However, um, from what I understand, uh, the one of the ways that safeguard system works is it's it's a, it's an uh, another AI system um, which is kind of operating in the back end of uh, ChatGPT, and that AI system is trained on. And this is where we saw with like the reporting from the Time Magazine article about the mm. uh, the Kenyan data workers that mm. OpenAI was contracting with that were being exposed to a lot of this extremely awful um, content that you've been talking about, really violent and disturbing, um, you know, which has always been the case with social uh, media content moderators and other forms of um, data labor. And so my understanding is, is that you know, uh, OpenAI was contracting out with this uh, Kenyan company, and then they were cleaning up data um, mm. and using that cleaner, cleaner, less toxic data to train a safety AI, which then operates in the back end of ChatGPT. And so, mm. I mean, uh, there's an irony here that, like, for them, um, they still had to remove the human labor by intermediating it with a different AI system. System, um, <laughs> in order before it interacts with the uh, you know, GPT system, um, and so it just speaks to how removed and hidden that labor is. And this is stuff that we've, you know, we, but mm. both of us and others have worked on and talked about for a very long time. But this is really important, and I, I think you're absolutely right that like 
we focus on the AI systems, on the models, um, and of course we should. These are the things we interact with. These are the things that will have um, interactions and effects on us. But I think you are absolutely right as well, is that there has been a, uh, a, a real... Um, overlooking ignorance even of the data sets and of the political economy of that data. Like the reason why uh, the GPT system, the GPT model is trained on the internet is the reason why is the same exact reason um, why all of these algorithms going back to, you know, the platform companies and stuff. And now it's all AI, even though who knows, mm. you know, it's all algorithm AI. It's all the same thing, uh, different buzzwords, <laughs> but they're all trained on the cheapest data available. Um, whereas if we actually yeah. cared about the quality of these models and of these systems, then we would care about the quality of the data that goes into them. And in order to have high quality data, that actually requires investing in mm-hmm. the creation mm-hmm. of high yes. quality data, investing yeah. in the human labor and expertise yes. necessary to clean it and maintain it. And, and, but no one wants to do that because no one wants to actually invest money in anything. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if you have to follow, you know, a responsible ethical route to building large models, whether language models or vision models, my thinking is that you would end up not doing it because let's start with the data itself. So according to various regulations, for example, GDPR, uh, you ought to follow like the minimum requirement is that it has to be sourced legally, fairly, uh, and I forgot the third criteria. So people have to be aware and they have to give consent for their, whether it's text or image or video, for their data to be used in, to be included in a data set, to be used for training and validating machine learning models. This doesn't happen. Imagine even like saying or asking, you know, can you ask people for their consent before you use their data? And most people in the machine learning community will just laugh at you. So starting from the, you know, the unlawful sourcing of data, data sets, then you move on to data labeling, which is, you know, very undercompensated. As you said, the Kenyan workers were paid on average $1.32 uh, per hour for labeling really horrific and emotionally traumatic, emotionally troubling data sets. So even if you get data sets that are collected lawfully, then you, th- this, this is another really deeply troubling process of, you know, data labeling. If you want to do it, you will have to put a lot of money and, and resources into doing it right. Uh, at the moment, nobody's doing that. People are looking for the cheapest way of, you know, outsourcing or or putting uh, this kind of ghost work or labeling work to the most vulnerable communities, in, usually in the global south. So, I mean, if if you want to do machine learning right, then a lot of the 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 you know, the, the resources, a lot of the effort, a lot of the funding, a lot of the money would go to these kind of undervalued, underpaid tasks. And this is the most, you know, overlooked, uh, you know, 
process of the machine learning pipeline. Most people don't even consider it as part of the machine learning pipeline. It's seen as like something that's, you know, uh, you, something that's far removed, something that's not part of machine learning, but it is, it's critical, it's important. And, and the money is there. I mean, you've got these, you know, not only OpenAI receiving, you know, $10 billion investment from Microsoft, but you've got, you know, because generative AI is the new trend, because everybody that was investing in Web3 and crypto and blockchain had all this, have all decided for some reason um, that they were going to stop investing and turn their attention somewhere else, you know. But now you have like major venture capitalist firms invest hundreds of millions of dollars into um, generative AI startups that have no product, right? They just have a pitch deck um, and they have, you know, (laughs) uh, like I saw reports of this company, Mobius AI, which was founded by three ex-Google employees. They have no product. They just have a Mm. pitch and they received Mm. a $100 million (laughs) investment round led by Andreessen Horowitz, right? Mm. Uh, and, And it's like, so the money exists yes, to actually yes. go about doing this in a responsible, fair way. But that's yeah. it's because no one cares about that. In a paper I wrote uh, uh, that came out a few years ago um, on data capital, I talk about this as theft, right? This exact mm-hmm. thing, yes. like this data is not collected, it's stolen. This is a form of theft um, and we need to understand it as, as theft. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Imagine, imagine going into uh, into this. Uh, imagine these three ex Googlers instead of having just a, a, a you know hypothetical uh, you know uh, slide deck. Imagine they propose some kind of work to improve the lives of cost workers or dataset labelers, or some kind of mechanism to audit datasets or to improve datasets. They will not be. They will not get the money. It will not. It's not a glamorous thing. It's not, uh, you know, uh, as as fashionable or as cool as going in with these empty uh, slide decks. Um, so, you know, the the important work, the, this dirty work, it doesn't get as much money. It does. It's not seen as as cool. So, this is this is the kind of uh, you know discourse we are in. This is the kind of general attitude there is towards data work towards, you know, improving the, towards even just like paying proper wages for, for data set labelers or for, uh, even paying for the, for, for data subjects, uh, for, for the lack of a better word. I think this is a great way to actually transition. Um, I, I, I do want to spend some time talking about your work, right? Um, and I think your work actually speaks a lot to this because a lot of what we're talking about is these really kind of both broader and underlying uh, issues in the kind of um, the, the political economy around these AI models and the data pipeline. Um, and with that is uh, these questions of 
who really has the most influence and 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 capital in this space so who therefore whose interest whose values are able to kind of dictate and direct the uh, uh, the way that machine learning and AI research um, is done the way it's developed for what purposes right um, what kind of yes. systems and applications does it plug into and you've been doing along with uh, some of your colleagues um, some really excellent work just mapping out the uh, what you call the values encoded in machine learning research um, which is a paper that you had just come out recently um, in the fact yeah. conference so the the fairness accountability and transparency conference and 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 that is yeah. a uh <laughs> Yeah, could you could you talk about yeah, that yeah, paper yeah. and maybe tie it in as well to the um, computer vision work that you've uh, that you're working on as well? Yeah, absolutely, with pleasure. Yeah, so you know, for for years, decades, uh, there is this general consensus, especially within the machine learning, artificial intelligence community, that machine learning, especially, you know, the super technical work is value neutral, it's objective, it's, you know, free from political ideologies and so on. Uh, and, of course, you know, science um, science and technology studies, critical data studies, critical AI studies, you know, uh, these scholars know for sure that there is no scientific endeavor that's free from, you know, political ideologies or there is no such thing as a view from nowhere or an objective or neutral tool. However, there was there was no kind of, you know, textual evidence. So what we did was we looked at 100 most influential papers from two of the most uh, uh, prestigious conferences with, you know, the, with the, the, the top uh, I-indexing, H-indexing, all the various metrics. These are ICML and NeurIPS. And what we found was that far from being neutral, uh, a lot of, like most of these papers, they care about things such as, you know, accuracy, novelty, performance, generalization, scaling up, and, and you know, all, all the other buzzwords that, that, uh, that we are familiar with. And... Uh, and for most people, the argument is that because these are technical papers, uh, because they are dealing with, you know, mathematics uh, or, you know, mathematical equations, uh, they, uh, you know, they are free from, you know, societal implications or societal uh, values. Uh, but that's actually incorrect. That's actually false because even though these papers, because they are highly technical found in, you know, the, the top machine learning paper, uh, conferences, even though they are technical, they are, they end up, these are not research that stay in the lab. They end up back into society with downstream impacts. So some of the papers we were looking at are, for example, proposing deepfake models, proposing various techniques to combat misinformation, uh, fake news. They were about recommender systems. And we know for sure that these are systems that end up that end up having real concrete impacts on people. Uh, take deepfakes, for example. We know that I think about 96% of pornographic videos and images that are generated that end up on the internet are now 
generated using deepfake models. So when you have, yeah, this was researched about two years ago. I don't know what the, uh, I, I don't know what the latest is, but this is from two years ago. And, uh, yeah, and if you are dealing with misinformation, if you are putting forward a technique for recommender systems, you are kind of altering someone's preferences. You are including or excluding certain things. You are deciding what's info correct information, what's in misinformation. So they really are not just purely technical. These are socio-technical systems. This kind of you know machine learning is value neutral. Uh, ends up being used as as a protection or as in, insinuation from criticism, as insinuation from actually uh, looking into the societal impacts of your work. And we also uh, looked at, do these, these like most influential papers, do they uh, talk about societal impacts of their work? And unfortunately, out of the 100 papers, only two of them mentioned the societal, the potential societal impact of their work, and one of them barely in passing mentions it. And this is really uh, this is disastrous, co considering how impactful these models are to to you know to society at large. And another thing we considered was this ties back to even you know companies like OpenAI. We considered was. Uh, these days, uh, a lot of machine learning models or even data sets are put forward as a way of democratizing AI, which is that giving access to AI to everybody, uh, making AI as something that, you know, people should have access to regardless of the resources, their, their location and so on. So this has become a thing. Uh, however, what we found was the opposite. We compared data from over 10, across 10 years. So we compared papers that were published in 2008, 2009 versus 2018 and 2019. We looked at the affiliations and funding resources for these most influential papers. And you would think that given a lot of the discourse about democratizing AI, you would think that a lot of AI is becoming decentralized, right? Uh, but what we found was the opposite. In 2008-2009, of the papers had corporate affiliations and funding. Whereas come to 10 years forward, to 2018-2019, 58% of the, the most influential papers had corporate funding and affiliation. So as we move forward a lot of AI research, and this is most influential research that ends up not only shaping the field, but also shaping society, is, com is coming only from a few, you know, big, powerful bodies, a handful corporations. So this comes at kind of at a cost. They, are, they become more influential or these most influential papers are published by uh, uh, scholars with corporate affiliations and funding at the cost of outsourcing or pushing out, you know, uh, uh, pushing out, you know, smaller companies or researchers from under-resourced uh, universities. Uh, and of course, no, uh, uh, no researchers uh, included from, you know, say the global south or from under-resourced languages. So as the handful few 
you know, really take hold on uh, these uh, uh, leading into leading, you know, what research agenda is said, what kind of research questions are uh, asked, what kind of models are developed. Um, it, it becomes less and less diverse. It crowds out uh, all the other uh, you know, uh, diverse researchers that would have that had existed actually uh, uh, ten years ago. The summary in the end, uh, what we find is that machine learning is uh, a, a, you know a, a field that is power centralizing that centralizes power in the hands of the few, as opposed to you know the general uh, thinking that we hear about democratizing AI. And I guess it's uh, yeah. That, that's that's the quick summary of the values encoded in in machine learning paper. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a great paper, and it's 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 a great paper in large part because like you know for people like us who uh, really pay critical attention to these fields like AI and machine learning research, uh, you know these are things we we know that this is the case, right? We, we, mm-hmm. we kind of know it just from paying close attention um, and, and seeing who's producing what, what the major um, kind of, you know, centers of capital and, and, and so on are. Um, the one thing that, you know, for me, what your paper is especially really useful for is not just confirming what we suspect, but doing so in a way that is really uh, richly detailed, both quantitatively and qualitatively as well. And really seeing, like really putting this fine point on the fact that, you know, you're talking about the kind of the values encoded in this research, right? What are the, you know, the this kind of self-professed values of these top most influential papers um, in this uh, in this research area, right? And of course, they're not things around societal effects or privacy or public interest or fairness or anything like that. They are these seemingly uh, very you know scientific engineering values around performance, generalization, building on past work, right? These mm-hmm. are the kinds of the top. These are the top three values that you identify, mm-hmm. along with a long list of many others. Others, so it's certainly a power law distribution in terms of the presence of the values. Um, but then, when you really dig into, as your paper does, like. Okay, performance. Sure, we should expect that AI machine learning researchers care about the performance of their models. Um, but then when we dig into it and you dig into what that really means, we find out that performance means, um, you know, these like uh, fractional percentage increases <laughs> on quote unquote gold standard performance of a previous version of the model, right? Like advancing yes. the, the so-called state of the art by these absolutely negligible minuscule amounts. And how are they doing that? They're not doing it through sophisticated engineering or scientific innovation. They're doing it through the brute force of capital, right? It's by having access to pre-established extremely large uh, data sets that are held by uh, corporations and companies, <laughs> right? Um, it's it's so it's yeah. the application of it's doing the open AI model of using the entire internet as your data set in order to improve the performance of your model, um, and it's it's all of these these tricks, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and similarly, if we talk about like generalization, and I think this also goes into the you know computer vision work you've done, is that like for them generalization is really important. Why? Because like you said about Sam Altman, you know they want to create and own and 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 steward and maintain worldwide common goods you know importantly not public goods these things are yeah. not public but they want <laughs> no. them to be common corporately owned common goods um, which means that they want absolutely uh, you know universality absolute generalizability they want to create a system that is not used for one specific thing but a system that is used by everybody for everything. Um, and, and so it's like yeah. these seemingly scientific and engineering values, when you dig into what they actually mean in practice, all of a sudden they look uh, very political, very economic, very societal. Yeah, exactly. So also, as you, as you mentioned, all these uh, values, top values like performance, inaccuracy, uh, and scaling up, uh, w when you dig into them, they really are operationalized in a very narrow way uh, that that fits the field itself. Uh, sometimes even uh, there is no there is no uh, sometimes even there is no synchronicity uh, around how people use various te techniques, various terminologies such as generalization. Some people mean it in a in, in a way to improve. Uh, to 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 improve like by a tiny margin on you know a state of the art model or data set some people mean it to uh, to to generalize from one modality to other modality for example from image to voice some people mean it to generalize from one test set to another test set so there is this ad hocness as well but also at the end of the day, it's it's defined, it's operationalized in a in a in a way that that fits the field, in a way that serves the field, not in a way you know that that serves the general community, or not in a way that is beneficial to everybody. Yeah, I guess we can use this as a, as a segue to um, uh, to the to, to the computer vision work we've done recently, uh, uh, which is that again. This work is similar to the, the values encoded in machine learning paper uh, because in the values encoded in machine learning, what we wanted to point out was that uh, there is this general notion coming from criticals, coming from, uh, you know, works like your work and other people work within uh, the critical AI, the critical data studies field and the, you know, STS field. Uh, people know that, you know, uh, machine learning encodes values. Uh, machine learning uh, um, has its own value. It follows ideologies. It follows trends. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a field that centralizes power. But you move on to, to the to the AI and machine learning space and people go on, people carry on as if the, the, what they are doing is value neutral. So the underlying objective of that paper was here we did the objective, objective again with a quotation mark analysis. And here is, you know, what we found. Here's, you know, here's the textual evidence, uh, you know, in, a, in the least contestable manner. And what we found was that the field does have values. The field does advance you know, certain values that are beneficial to the few. 
uh, and the field doesn't really care about the societal impacts of the work, even though you know most of the work coming out of machine learning does ends up you know impacting most people in society. So similar to that objective, uh, what we wanted to do with this uh, paper in with this computer vision paper was. Also in computer vision, you know, most people working in computer vision kind of know that what they are doing is surveillance. And critical studies also, like your work has shown that, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, this kind of work ends up being surveillance. It's surveillance. Uh, but it's it's this, uh, it's this like, field, it's, it's this internal secret that nobody says out loud. Uh, so uh, what we wanted to do is like, there is this notion that, you know, uh, all computer vision does is just surveillance. So we analyzed, uh, you know, huge corpus uh, of uh, papers from the top computer vision uh, conference, CVPR, uh, and we looked at also the, the we looked at the the patents that are coming out of it. So on the on the one hand, computer vision papers because they are academic work, people tend to see that as more an intellectual endeavor that's that's like divorced from you know real impacts or real applications. But then you move on to uh, patents. Actually, computer vision has the most patents coming out of it compared to any other academic field. So a lot of the computer vision work that seems like academic ends up being used to as, as a ground, as a background, as a basis for developing surveillance applications, surveillance tools, surveillance techniques. So we also analyzed patents that are coming out of the you know, CVPR um, publications. And we developed a, a scheme that categorizes, uh, you know, surveillance in, in various uh, uh, taxonomies. Uh, and what we found was uh, uh, most papers and patents, uh, you know, are uh, about monitoring, mapping, controlling, and surveilling the body. It could be, you know, anal analyzing or uh, uh, looking at uh, face images, iris images, fingerprints, various bi biometrical data, uh, and most of them, uh, and the next level is surveilling the body. Uh, it, it's presented as, you know, uh, body counting or, uh, or even scene analysis. Uh, uh, what we've, we also included a category where we wanted to give benefit of the doubt, where there might be a potential for papers and patents to develop a, uh, a seemingly monitoring technology, but that one that gives control to, to the individual itself. So this is about transfer of data. And of all the papers and patents we analyzed, uh, then fail in that category. Uh, so they either, they, they are always about monitoring, you know, individuals, monitoring bodies or monitoring environments. Uh, and uh, again, another characteristics I should go back uh, because we also analyzed the data transferal as well. Another characteristics of surveillance is the transfer of data. Uh, so, as I, as I said, going back to my original point, we wanted to give some benefit of, benefit of the doubt that 
where you can't develop a technology where the data is not transferred, where the individual has full autonomy of the data. We haven't found that. In most cases, data is transferred via wireless to institutions or uh, various organizations or, or data is just out there. Uh, and sometimes these tools are used, these um, surveillance technologies coming out of computer vision papers are used uh, not just to surveil people, but also to influence people, to control people. Uh, and this is really important uh, given that uh, it, when you look at computer vision patterns in papers, over the past 10, 15 years, the language has really moved on. The language has become so fine-grained to obscure that these papers and patents are actually doing surveillance. So you don't see the term surveillance so much, for example. You see like image dissecting, uh, image clustering, extracting, classification, processing, enhancement, estimation, all these code words that end up uh, that in the end mean surveillance. So as, as we move on, as time goes by, uh, as there is more and more research showing that all these technologies are surveillance, in fact, the field has also adapted to hide the fact that it's doing surveillance through using this kind of computer vision-specific jargon words, through obscuring uh, surveillance through this kind of language. And, uh, yeah, so the, the summary is that uh, uh, we, we, saw, we, we show with, you know, with, again, you know, uh, textual evidence that much of what computer vision does is surveillance. It, it, it's either body surveillance, it's like surveilling body parts, or it's surveilling, you know, environments, whether it's town squares, whether it's public squares, whether it's our homes itself, so the various gadgets we bring in, whether it's vacuum cleaners or, you know, uh, fitness watches or smart fridges, uh, it all, all it does is map your movements, uh, you know, uh, uh, really kind of uh, datafy uh, and uh, grasp and automate your, uh, your various activities uh, and really uh, uh, and surveil you, surveil your, your movement and uh, predict your movement. So it, all it does, uh, much of the work coming out of computer vision is pretty much surveillance. Yeah, and I mean, I think the the way you and your colleagues have mapped this through a very large corpus of, of academic papers and then through 27,000 patents related to this computer vision research, right? So a massive corpus to, you know, this is, again, this is not like... Uh, in fact, your conclusions based on all of this research are maybe even stronger than people, you know, the, the kind of, you know, critical researchers like myself might have said, right? Where it's like, okay, yeah, like a lot of this stuff is surveillance and is used for surveillance and, and it's, you know, all of that. But your, your, your conclusions based on actually really studying the, the, the field and the patents is that it's all, it's all surveillance, right? <laughs> Like that's the entire um, purpose of this entire uh, of this field of research is 
very influential, highly capitalized field, which as you point out as well, leads to the most patents and the, and mm. the, and the most applications. And, mm. and some of the, the uh, talking about this language, this uh, obscuring language that is used in this work in order to not um, acknowledge that they're doing surveillance or maybe it's for the academics to uh, fool themselves, trick themselves into thinking that they're just doing scientific and engineering technological research um, and that they're not directly feeding into mm. Um, mm. large-scale corporate and governmental surveillance applications. They have gone so far as to use really, really quite absurd um, examples of this obscuring language. And one of the things that really stood out to me in your paper was one of the the, the major themes you found around this, um, what you, uh, you and your colleagues call the obfuscating language of surveillance AI, is that uh, these papers, uh, you know, when they, they, they tend to um, cast humans as uh, entities and objects, objects. right? And so yes. <laughs> when, they, when they talk about people, uh, when they talk about data, which is directly about human body parts or human bodies or human spaces, they talk about objects and scenes, right? I mean, what they really yes. mean is people in places, you know? Exactly. And, and so... <laughs> It's it's like yes. it's so absurd that I could not make it up that these yes. you know that that they have so thoroughly dehumanized the human subjects of their data um, that they yes. literally talk about them as objects. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So this is this is uh, uh, this, you have captured my feeling as someone who is in between fields. Uh, on the one hand, you go to, you know, works like yours and other critical studies, and it's so clear that it's dehumanizing to refer to people as objects. But then you go to the computer vision side and you see that it's so normal and common to refer to people as objects. If you ask otherwise, you will be the, the crazy one. People will just look at you like and laugh at you as if you are crazy. So there is this huge disconnect. Um, so uh, hopefully this paper, you know, fills that gap. And work like yours is really important as well. So the way we approached this work is through kind of both inductive and deductive approach. So we looked, we look at works, we look at papers like yours, we look at works like yours to really understand what surveillance is because we need a really critical nuanced understanding of what surveillance is to, to, to grasp what surveillance is before we go look at, you know, computer vision papers and to, to with, before we can categorize this is this sort of surveillance, this is this sort of surveillance. So the, the, the critical studies have been the backbone of our work in understanding what surveillance is uh, because that's, it's that kind of understanding that is foundational to analyzing and to looking at computer vision papers. 
<laughs> That's very kind of you to say. I will say it is a uh, it is a circular feedback because I then go and look at paper at work by people like you to understand the technology and understand these fields that I'm merely an outside observer to. And and <laughs> and so I, I I'm really glad to hear that the work by me and other critical researchers is useful. Um, and I know. Uh, that your work and this work that really engages um, deeply in the field and is part of the field, right, gives us that really necessary technological and disciplinary um, understanding that, you know, just as you say, our, you know, uh, our work is the backbone for your work. Well, uh, I wholeheartedly believe that your, that your work and, and work like it has to be the backbone of critical work. You can't do one without the other. Um, and, and so yes. uh, I, I think that, you know, the, this, this, this is the work that's really necessary to kind of bring it back and we can start closing out the episode, but to bring it back to our, you know, what we talked about at the beginning around, you know, chat GPT and the GPT system. And as you said, like GPT is just one model. It's the most uh, it's it's received the most attention and the most hype, and I think that is, I, I have said for a while, and I stand by this that it's not because the technology is the best; it's because Sam Altman and OpenAI are extremely good um, salesmen um, and, and and really good at uh, at, at mark. They're really good marketers, mm-hmm. right? They're really good yeah. at kind of creating the hype and attention around their technology they're extremely good at saying all of the uh, all of the things to garner attention you know they acknowledge certain risk of course they always focus on the existential civilizational <laughs> ending risk or they focus on like you know misinformation in other words they 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 are really good at focusing on things that garner attention, uh, that pick up and do well in the media because people intuitively understand, uh, you know, AI overlords or, you know, Russian misinformation or whatever. <laughs> and they do so in a way that is like with the computer vision um, work, like with the values encoded in the machine learning research, they do so in a way that is always obscure, always obfuscating, and always establishing themselves as and their technologies as the stewards and the solutions to the problems that they are causing, right? Like, you know, it's like, what's the best way to fight misinformation? With better technology, more accurate (laughs) technology, right? You you, you said at the beginning, you know, that you couldn't get uh, GPT-4 to understand Amharic, right? Well, what they would say is, well, that just means, that's because Amharic is a quote-unquote low-resource language and we just (laughs) need more data about the Amharic language. We need more of your, uh, you know, we need more Ethiopian governmental documents and and patents and, and all this stuff that's in the Amharic language so that we can capture it and feed it in and create a better model. Yeah, in the process, in the process, make them more powerful. In the process, allows them to monopolize uh, the language that we speak, that we master. But they, through you know, gathering that huge amounts of data and through support of the Ethiopian government or through support of various documentation, 
they end up the arbitrators of the language that they don't speak, that they develop the technology for, that they end up selling back to us. So this is this is this is where it's going when they when they you know want more data, more support, more resources to develop, the, you know, uh, to develop technology for low resources languages. Uh, instead, what we need is to allow. The language speakers themselves, like you know, the the Maori in New Zealand have done uh, with the Mr. Hiku Maori. And this is what we need to allow people that speak the language to to the to to develop their own technology. To you know, because they are, of course, you know, the the you know the the genuine arbiters of the language. They are the experts of the language. They know best. Uh, but in, instead, we have like large corporations like uh, OpenAI wanting to monopolize everything, wanting to control everything, wanting to centralize power, so that they, they yeah, so that they can sell the, the technology back to us. Yeah, I think that's a a fantastic place to end it, right? That like ethical and responsible AI is meaningless if we don't talk about the governance and control of the AI and the underlying data sets, right? And so, yes, uh, exactly. Th- this has this has been. Um, a fantastic discussion. You've been the perfect person to talk through these <laughs> issues about uh, I, I really enjoyed it. So thank you so much. Yes. Um, you know, uh, I'll definitely have a link to the values and machine learning paper in the episode description. I'll throw your Twitter in there. People should definitely read that, follow you. The computer vision paper is um, under, it's it's not published yet. It's coming out soon. Um, And so keep an eye on Ababa's Twitter feed for that one. It's a fantastic paper. Um, And is there anything else that you would like to, to plug or direct people's attention to? Uh, I, I think you've done an excellent job doing that. So thank you so much. Uh, it's been so uh, great talking to you. Uh, thank you for your in-depth knowledge and insight about my own papers. So yeah, it's been amazing. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, and everybody else, you can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for an additional uh, premium episode every single week. So find us over there. Uh, and until next time, see ya. Bye.
Bitch. Kill, 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 k